Support for The Young Project comes from listeners like you. Thank you. Today we have got three acts for you. First, a conversation with a friend of ours who is a friend of the Marshall Islands. He's going to be talking about the effects of climate change uh, on that community in the Pacific. Then a quick conversation between Tommy and myself regarding what does it look like to be a Jesus follower, to be a God follower, to be a Christ follower, and have the opportunity to care for the earth, to be stewards of the earth. And then lastly, the third act will be a conversation between Tommy, our own Tommy, Tomalea, and a gal named Stephanie Smith regarding action steps we can take to better the, the planet, just simple things we can do every single day to be better stewards of the earth. Next one, we have a conversation with Nick and Clayton. So we've got an interview for you today with a friend of mine from university back in the good old undergraduate days. Uh, his name is Clayton. Clayton Cruz on the other line over there. I want to say hey to everybody, Clayton. What's up, everybody? It's Clay Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are you going by Clay now? I saw that on uh, your Facebook. Or was that always what you go go by and I've just always called you Clayton? Um, I go by Clayton. Like people that know me, I go by Clayton. But I, I feel like with people that I don't know and I'm kind of... Tr- creating somewhat of a public figure persona especially with this film i think i think i'm gonna go with clay cruz as like the public name but if you know me cool it's kind of it's kind of reverse like you would say you'd think the nickname is like the friend name um but i'm kind of flipping that okay cool well we'll call you clay for the rest of this interview can you tell us a little bit about yourself what uh where your passions lie what's your what your history is as far as being in the Marshall Islands, since that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, so I uh, grew up normal life. Are we going back way back? How far am I going back? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, t- you can. I'll just cut out whatever you say. Oh, that was, okay, all right. You know, yeah. before you were five, because that might not be the most exciting. You can tell us where you were born, Clayton. Clay. Right. Um, Clay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, stage name. I'll get it. Like, you know, normal life for the most part. Uh, Born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, but I don't really claim it. Uh, I grew up most of my life in Southern California under a military family, military household, so that was fun. Yeah, I went to Walla Walla University, had a great time there. Uh, took two years off to, to go be an SM in the Marshall Islands. And since that point, it kind of helped refocus my priorities and create some meaning, I feel like, in depth in my life that I felt like I was kind of lacking, but I didn't know it before going. Um, and also kind of flung me into a photography and film lifestyle um, before I kind of dabbled in photography in high school. Um, going to Majro, it was so beautiful, and I was diving almost every day. And so I really just took pictures, like more pictures than I've ever taken in my life. And then when wow. I came back, I decided to be um, a film major and kind of enter the world of storytelling. And um, yeah, I haven't looked back since. And it's so it's kind of it's kind of poetic in a way that Ma- the Marshall Islands is the reason why I became a film major and the reason why I switched to storytelling. And now I'm going back to make a film there. So what is this pod- project about? I know it's, it's after 95. It's like you guys that are heading it up, or at least you and Jared. But what is the based on your time as an SM out there or like, how did you get involved with it? So this project, I mean, the inspiration came from my time out there, but it's not, the film itself is not going to be about like my experience as an SM. Um, we're not going to dig too deep into, you know, the relationships or my personal side of things. I mean, that's yet to be seen, I guess. Um, but that's not necessarily the goal or like the angle that we're going in with it. Um, but that's definitely the connection. That's definitely what like started the whole idea was the fact that I am totally in love with the Marshall Islands, like yeah. through and with the people and the environment there and just everything that it has to offer. 
And um, yeah, my two years there definitely like got the idea kind of brewing in my mind. So it has something to do with music and art and culture. How does that all tie into, is that like the the driving force behind you doing the documentary or? Yeah, the driving force is music, art, poetry, anything that you can do to express yourself to get across a message. And the Marshallese people specifically super love music and the youth there and the kids there really love to sing. And so that's kind of um, what I was thinking would be the emphasis in the artistic approach sure. was the music and then secondarily poetry and then whatever else we can find. Um, and it also kind of combines with the work that after 95 already does with the emphasis in combining video with music, Jared and Jordan and some of the other guys on our team are super into creating music and producing music. And so we try to look for a project that would just complement everyone's skills and everyone's past experiences. And so, you know, for me, having the island background and wanting to be in documentary, and then for Jared, loving music and, and wanting to tell stories with music and video, like it just kind of all meshed together and and it, f- it felt like a perfect film for our team specifically. Yeah. Because um, it's so hard, like, you know, what project do you choose? Like, how do you be different? And so for us, like, this is a unique project that it almost feels like we we're like made for, like we were made to do this. Um, and there, you know, there's, there's other, there's tons of people out there that are great at videography, you know, better. There's always somebody better than you or more experienced. Sure. Um, but I think all of the ingredients to make this specific film, um, in the Marshall Islands with these people and have it, have that music emphasis is kind of the perfect project for, for our team. That's cool. What is the, like, who, who assigned you this or who, who are you getting funding from? Or is this something you guys kind of just came up on, on your own from the you know, seat of your pants? You were just like, we're passionate about all this stuff. Let's throw that into a bowl, stir it around and see what we come up with. Kind of for me. I mean, I'm always thinking about the islands and like I said, like I want to do documentaries. That's my dream. Um, yeah. And so it was, and I always knew I would go back and and do things. I I mean, I have a, this is kind of not related to the film, but I have a small kind of like life goal to go back at some point. And, and one of the projects that I want to kind of head up and do, there's actually an old rundown movie theater out there and it hasn't been open for like over 20 years. And like, I always walked by it every time I would go to the grocery store when I lived there and I would just look at it and be like, man, like what a shame, you know, like what a shame. And so that's just like a side thing. So Marshallese is always in my mind because I, I was thinking, oh, I could go back, restore this like old movie theater, create like a youth center, like a film center, like I don't sure. know, just something really dope that the community could like utilize. And so, I, yeah, things like that are always popping in my mind. And and actually this idea came from, it was kind of forced into my head because I had to come up with a project um, because we were in, we were being encouraged um, by a few of my film friends to apply to this competition, and so basically there was a competition called Media Collab, and the grand prize for a film project was twenty thousand dollars. And so, and I knew someone who was helping organize it, and they were really like, "Yo, we love your stuff. We love After ninety five. Like, you guys need to like you need to apply. Like, come up with an idea that's worthwhile. Like, submit it. And then basically, if you submitted a project plan and they liked it enough." there would be up to six finalists that would be selected to fly down to California and present your, your pitch, um, to, to a Hollywood, basically a pretty heavy lineup of Hollywood producers, directors, experienced film world people. And it's also in front of a live audience as well. (laughs) And so it's kind of like a small spectacle in a way. Um, and so long story short from that, basically we got accepted into the final six and so we were we were pitching against we were the youngest people there. We were pitching against people who had been in the film industry for years and years. So okay, it was, we'll do. It was a happy lineup of experienced people. And when we got there, we were like, oh shoot, like it's getting real. And we presented and you had ten minutes to present, including questions. Uh, and we got second place, which was awesome. So we got ten thousand dollars. Wow. Which kickstarted our fundraising and right now we're around thirty five. 35k and so the plan is for jared and i to go out there and live for three months and document stories yeah. and um uh try to make music 
So tell me a little bit about the title. You said voices rising. Like what what's the what's the driving force behind that? That's I definitely feel like there's some layers, like it's an onion. We've got to we gotta peel back some layers to kind of oh, get to yeah. the bottom of it. And yeah, there's layers for sure. And I feel like there's layers to it that I haven't even myself really understood or discovered yet. Um, I like it because I feel like it has room for growth and it, it can have meaning for different people. You know, um, kind of how we came up with it was first and foremost, um, the problem that's happening in the islands um, has to do with climate change currently. Uh, effective climate change, the predominant effect is rising sea levels due to melting ice caps, as most everyone has heard a million times. Yeah. Um, but these islands that these people live on are two, three, maybe five feet above sea level. Um, and no hills, no mountains, nothing. So super susceptible to damages that can occur from a rising sea. And so the whole idea with the name is like, we're trying to create a movement, trying to create just a spark of life through the youth there and through the people that have talents such as singing and poetry. So that, you know, voices rising, they, they can lift up their voice they can say something out loud and they can they can get the attention of people around the world that can potentially help them stop this problem or at least know about it and know their situation and understand what they're going through because i personally it's hard for me to even comprehend what it would feel like growing up and not knowing if the place that i live is gonna be there in 20 years it's kind of a crazy concept and it's something that's virtually out of the control of the people that live there. I mean, the Marshallese contribute 0.000-something percent to global climate emissions and the things that cause climate change. I mean, they really don't have any impact, but they're the country that's going to end up suffering the most and the country that's going to suffer first. Um, yeah, they're kind of on the front lines of that. Exactly. Yeah. So, voices rising. We want to just we want people to hear about it and hear about their stories yeah. before the ocean rises above them. <laughs> That's crazy. You say like five to ten feet above sea level. I mean, how many years d does that give? Does that give these islands or or the majority of these islands at least? You say twenty. You said something like about twenty years. Is that is that kind of the trajectory? Is like everybody's going to have to migrate in in twenty years? From the studies that I've read, um, you know, it varies. The predictions vary, and obviously it's not perfect science. <laughs> it's all yeah. self-prediction and estimation. Um, you know, I, the, kind of the average that I've seen is 30 to 50 years. It's going to become pretty intense, and it's going to become a place that, you know, not most people are going to want to live. Yeah. I think past 50 years, it's pretty generally accepted that unless we change things, um, it's going to be unlivable. So pretty inundated, especially during high tide season, which those are predicted to get worse, but it's hard to say how much worse. Sure. Uh, because there is times where the ocean is pretty low. It's not threatening. It's not like it's beating down on their houses every single day, you know, because people still live there, right? But there, it, when the high tide season comes, it's, it has been increasingly just much, much worse. And um, I've even had students that I know had their houses flooded during high tide season and and people are leaving all the time. Like even right now, people aren't optimistic about the future there. And so a lot of people don't know this, but there's already over 30,000 Marshallese living in the United States. Really? Yeah. So a, a huge chunk of their population has migrated and, and will continue to migrate to the United States to landlocked places mostly. Yeah. There's over 15, I think it's 15 to 20,000 people that are living in Arkansas. <laughs> for whatever reason uh one marshallese guy went out there one day and the rest uh, they keep going out there um and so a lot of them they'll live out there in a place that doesn't have an ocean has absolutely no island culture and they work in the chicken factories and the turkey factories over there in arkansas wow so it's kind of an in, that's that in itself is an interesting aspect of the film just seeing how that affects their identity and who they are as a people can you tell me a little bit about like the nuclear history? You'd said you'd said that there was some like nuclear testing history and whatnot there in the Marshall Islands. What's that? What's what's the story there? Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of wild. I feel like it's one of the forgotten parts of. Amer I mean, there's so many forgotten parts of American history. I feel yeah, like we, we we like to pick and choose what we want we, to talk about. Yeah, exactly. We have a very selective focus Memory. on history, um, and this is one of those things. I would say. Um, 
yeah, 40s and well, it, it dates back before even nuclear testing. They've been pushed around by bigger and more powerful countries um, for the last 300 years. Yeah, but most recently it's been the U.S. Right? We came in during World War II. What's up, guys? We're gonna help you out, Japanese. Get out of here. All that kind of thing. Like, yay! Um, and then shortly after is Cold War, uh, trying to keep up with Russia's nuclear program, and so United States wouldn't have any of that. Uh, Marshall Islands, middle of nowhere, right? Perfect place to drop a, a nuclear bomb. <laughs> well, there's also people that live out there as well. And yeah. that's the side of the story that most people don't know. They went out there. You, you might have heard of Bikini Atoll. It's kind of like the most famous Marshallese island that nobody lives on, <laughs> which is kind of ironic to huh. me. They, they know the island that people can't live on anymore because of nuclear fallout. But yeah, 40s oh. and 50s, so many bombs so many bombs were dropped. Um, one of the biggest ones, there was fallout that caused all kinds of problems for the people's health there. Um, there's a, some sketchy stories as well that talk about how they moved people away from the bombs area where what was considered to be affected bomb area, um, but the fallout drifted straight to where they were relocated um, kids were playing in the ash of the bomb thinking it was snow. Wow. Women give birth to babies that, that had bones that couldn't hold up. And they called, <laughs> it was a term they called jellyfish babies because they didn't literally have any bone structure. Ugh. Of course, scarring, deformation, people to this day all the time are born with six or seven fingers. You can see these things even now. And wow. the U.S. signed a compact to free association agreement wipe their hands clean. So the, the Marshallese have free access to the United States, no problem getting through. They can go and live and work, whatever they want. But with that deal, they were also compensated, I, I, I believe. Um, but with that deal, basically no lawsuit, no legal act, no investigation, no further action at all can be taken in regard to those nuclear testings and anything that has to do with ethics surrounding wow. those topics. And so, you know, what can you say? Forget about it, or we can continue continue to talk about it and let at least their voices be heard um, as a way of kind of dealing with that history and being able to express their feelings um, that they have towards that. It's it's really it's something that's it's it's shameful like to think about. And as a Marshallese person, having that history and not quite being able to express how you feel about it, I feel like that's sad. And so we, we kind of want to give them that platform as well in this doc where they can tell their stories, tell their grandma and grandpa's stories about what it was like and what happened. Um, because those islands that were where people relocated, they still haven't been able to go back. Yeah. And each island, you know, it's not all the same. Each island has its own distinct culture. Each island has its own small little um, ways of living that differ from place to place. And a lot of those places were completely lost um, when they had to move and relocate. Um, one of the biggest canoe cultures was from Bikini Atoll. And those people haven't been able to go back to their home since, since that time in the 40s and 50s. So because they're not able to like take any legal action or anything like that, this is kind of another layer to that onion I guess we're talking about as far as the voices rising title goes it's like giving voice to something that they're not exactly able to give voice to themselves because they can't they can't just go out and sue the US government because of that thing they signed they can't wow. do anything honestly and when it comes to yeah legal ramifications um, and they're totally dependent on the power of the United States like they don't have much of an economy sure um, so lots of they, imports and stuff I'm guessing yeah, yeah exactly and so you know, it's hard. Like their hands are basically tied and that's the whole idea. It's like they're kind of powerless. And so yeah. you know, at the very least we can do is give them a voice. Hmm. So what is the the music and the poetry that you're talking about? Like how does that play into these these topics like climate change, the the past of the nuclear testing and things like that? How does the the music and the poetry and the art tie into to these these elements of, of their history and their and their future in all reality? I think, I mean, for us, going this route, it's the most powerful way to tell a story is through music, poetry, and film combined. I mean, I can't think of a more emotional or captivating way to speak someone's truth. 
And it's deeply integrated into their culture. I mean, in the Marshall Islands, there's not much else to do. <laughs> like, sure. they have the ocean, which is a big part of their life, fishing culture, canoe culture, but they, they don't have mountains, they don't have hills, they don't have a lot of things to do. And so what they would do is they would tell stories and they would sing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and even it's, it's, even that is very minimalistic and pure. They don't have a lot of instrument variety. And so that's also going to be part of the challenge <laughs> is trying to come up with a way to infuse the um, more historical cultural sounds with more of a modern, um, modern take on the music. Yeah. Um, and so we just felt that it's the best way to express how someone feels about a situation. And, you know, this isn't going to be a doc that's about numbers. It's not going to be a doc that is trying to make some kind of arguments or solve some kind of case. This is not your typical, like, climate change is bad, do something about it documentary. This is more of a poetic, experimental, participatory with me and Jared film. And it just is going to follow the journey of us trying to flesh it all out and create art from it. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people ask like, what do you hope to gain from the film? You know, like just so that all we hope is that stories can be told and people are going to listen. That's all I can really hope for. You know, like it's a long shot that these islands are even going to be here. Say we, we postpone it or we're not as, it's not as quick as 50 years, but like it's going to take a lot for them not to be flooded eventually completely. Hey, so Clayton, who are some of the people that you've already kind of connected with that you might have you kind of have your foot in the door as far as a relationship goes um, with there in the Marshall Islands? Like, do you have some Marshallese that you you know you'll be connecting with as far as the music goes, the poetry goes, maybe government? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm super excited. We're getting ton of support right off the bat like people are people are now emailing me and i don't even have to ask and they're saying oh i want to be involved i love music i have this family history of songwriting and this and that how can i help you know and i'm i'm sitting here trying to think oh man like this is awesome but now like every all these people are knowing about it and i've got to get my stuff together and make sure everything's in line um so we make the most out of our time and the people that want to be involved um Super excited. The first person, the first name that I landed um, that I think is going to be a big part of the film and it's helping other people feel comfortable getting involved is a climate change activist who is Marshallese. She's also an educator, a poet. Um, her name is Kathy Jitnil Kijiner, and she's the first daughter of the president of the Marshall Islands. Oh, wow. And she's, she's traveled all around the world um, doing poetry and educating people about climate change specifically and how in the Marshall Islands and how it relates to them. And sure. uh, she, she even opened at the United Nations Climate Summit back in 2014. And um, just super cool person, super involved. And, and she's, she's on board with the project and she's already agreed to help and to be interviewed. And she also has kind of like a nonprofit, a climate change nonprofit and youth organization that she started and so we really hope that some of the funds of specifically the al album, musical album, will go to support um, that project and, and all that it's doing down there. And um, it's called Joji Kuhn. It's super cool. <laughs> Let's check it out. That's and, fantastic. Uh, some other people, um, we have the radio station is on board, which is fun. And um, uh, some of their most well-known artists that we won't know, but people in Marshall Islands definitely will. Um, Les Angelok, Zaya have all committed to being in the project. And just two weeks ago, I reached out to the government of the Marshall Islands and confirmed that the president herself, female president, female president herself um, would love to be a part of the project as well and wow. has agreed to an interview um, with me. And so that's pretty nerve-wracking because I have no You ever talked to a head of state president. before? Have you ever done that? You ever talked to a head of state? No, not one. No, not even close. <laughs> and and it was so weird because a couple like the the a couple weeks ago when I found out, two weeks before that, I saw that the Marshall Islands went to the White House um, in the United States and met with Donald Trump. And so like just thinking like, okay, what? You know, like, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna be connected and talking to somebody that is in the same like realm of like somebody like that. It's, it's 
kind of kind of mind blowing for your first film. Wow. Where can uh, our podcast listeners go to find out more? How can we how can we join in on yeah, like supporting this project, seeing seeing what becomes of it? Because I mean, you're still in the kind of the preliminary stages. Uh, where do we find out more? Definitely check out uh, After Ninety Five on Instagram. That's kind of the way that we are most engaged with our people that are following us. Um, on there, you can also find the link for the Voices Rising Instagram page. We do also have a website, www.after95creative.com. Um, and on there, there's also a Voices Rising tab. First big film. <laughs> no pressure. Wow. It's fine. Cool. We'll post all those notes and stuff in the sh- or the in the show notes. That's a new yeah. thing. Being new to yeah. podcasting, I didn't realize I could do that till. That's really cool. I'm actually really excited. I didn't when Peter told me about this. He was like, "Oh yeah, Clayton's doing some like climate change like movie." I was like, "Okay, cool." But <laughs> I, after talking to you about it, like this is really cool, Clayton. Like I'm That's serious, what, bro. Honestly, and like I feel like it's something that. Thank you. First of all, thank you. <laughs> um. But it's just something that I feel like as a filmmaker, the question is always like, what story do I tell? It's like, there's so much stuff out there. Like competition is so intense. There's so many high quality things being put out all the time, like crazy things. And like, there's always going to be somebody better. There's always going to be somebody with more funding and, and, and more resources than you, more experience than you. But like, we found this one little story that no one else has told no one else has attempted and i haven't heard of a documentary that's quite like this and so i'm just gonna go with it (laughs) just gonna go with it well thanks so much for sitting down and talking clayton that was um i don't want to say enlightening but it was invigorating at least that was like yeah this was really cool like this this project's really cool and now i'm excited about it now i'm gonna have to go find this instagram page and follow it yeah bro thanks for having me it was a good time yeah good thanks a lot with, uh, the young project and all you guys are doing it's awesome <laughs> thanks everyone and welcome once again to the young project this is episode three of the young project where our conversation revolves around acting against stagnant christianity i'm nick and other on the other line we have got my good friend tommy say hi to everybody tommy hello everybody i'm tommy that was a great that was a great hello uh yeah Today we get to do, we're going to talk a little bit about something that has been in the news recently. I guess for a lot of people, uh, we're going to talk about the Earth, the place you and I live. And unless you're an astronaut listening to this from the International Space Station, which I doubt anyone is, but hey, if you are, give us a shout out um, on your Twitter page, because <clears throat> or. Or you could be Charmaine Tan, and she is an alien. So there's that, too. We're not in this business to hurt people's feelings, but... Uh, I know, it's just a running joke, and I think it would be really funny if she ever listens to this, and then she'll see that I called her an alien. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, how, how wonderful. <laughs> well, here, we're going to be talking about the climate, the Earth, uh, and kind of how that fits into... Uh, the conversations revolving around the Bible and theology. So sit right, tight. We're not wanting to be some. Okay. Go for it. I'll sit tight. <laughs> no. no, don't sit tight. Say what you were going to say. What I was saying. Okay, okay. What I was saying is we're not trying to be some political fight against this, fight against that. We just want to say from our understanding of the Bible, this is how Jesus followers should live. Correct. And yeah. if that changes the way you vote, then that's that's up to you. So a few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with somebody, and I'm not the best at coming up with things to say off the top of my head all the time. 
but this individual was arguing that the world was intended to burn that that the place where we live now, the earth that we live on, it's okay that it is in a state of disarray that seas are rising and things like that because, because the Bible predicts that it'll happen. And he was referring to Revelation 7 where the four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back these four winds. And so they these winds, so they wouldn't be able to blow on the earth and the sea or on any tree, it says. And then... In, verse, in chapter two of, of, of excuse me, of, of chapter seven of verse two, it says, and I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted at those four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea. That was their intent. These four angels are coming to do harm on the land and the sea. And wait, says that, that fifth angel, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And so this person I was, I was having a conversation with argued that we had no obligation to care for the earth because of this. This is something that's going to happen. It's been prophesied. It is perhaps even in the process of happening. And so as Christians, as Christ followers, Jesus followers, we don't have to ourselves do anything about, about what, what we're doing to the environment. And I don't know, how, how would you respond to a conversation like that, Tommy? Yeah, that's a very interesting um, reading of the Bible. I think there are several things at play within his specific answer. Um, one, he's assuming that Revelation is a map of the future. So he's taking more of a, a historicist view when he reads Revelation, which, mind you, there's not many people that read Revelation that way. So it's a very unique perspective to read Revelation that way. Um, Second, he's also assuming that because something is prophesied, that it cannot be changed, Um, Mm. which is quite contradictory to what we read in the Old Testament. So those are the two factors that I hear right off the top of my head that that are in play. And let's kind of focus on, well, is there another way to understand that? Um, Not that passage, I mean specifically, but how we should approach creation, how we should approach the earth from the Eden um, perspective, which takes us actually all the way back to the book of Genesis, which I think we'll spend most of our time, correct? Yeah, I think think we might as well. That's kind of where... God, this this God character lays out this ideal for his for his people, his followers there in the in the early world, as it were. And yeah, we 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 think like we, we hear all these reports from scientists and things. The Earth is dying. Uh, we're not going to be able to survive the next you know hundred years, two hundred years, something like that. Our kids, the generations that our kids will be a part of, they're not going to be as as uh, well off as, as generations before. And like, you know, that, that's kind of exhausting. Like I hear this over and over and over again, and it's also, it's also disheartening. So I can understand why somebody would, would look to Revelation 7 and say, listen, this is just prophecy uh, and it's, being, it's prophecy being fulfilled. But yeah, I think if we, if we go back to Genesis, we look at like Genesis 1, God creates this from this formless earth. He creates this this utopia in a sense, right? Kind of capped off by these awesome yeah, things call called humans. <laughs> Which, what would you call it instead of utopia? No, I said you could call it utopia. Yeah, that, that works. It's ut- u- utopia, yeah. Nothing's wrong yet. Okay, then take us into chapter two. Let's dive into chapter two. Because that's, I think, that's where, that's where, isn't that where he gives dominion over the land? Right. Now that is, that's a very hefty topic. You want to jump, you want to jump into that? We can jump into that. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) You're the one that wrote your paper on this, your term paper. Yeah, but that's actually, that happens in chapter one. Oh, then let's do chapter. Yeah, women are in chapter one. I was wrong. Women are chapter one. Yeah, so it is a utopia. It's utopia. Okay. So yeah, we want to talk about that. So Genesis 1, 26 through 30, um, that's a very common passage that many Christians throughout history and even today use to talk about, well, humans do have the right to use the earth for their own gain. 
and many companies that, you know, started as Christian people will use this as a justification to, you know, mow down our forests, to burn the Amazon in some aspects like we see today happening. Um, and it's, I can read the passage now if you want to. It's not too long. Um, yeah, it go begins, for it. God said, let, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness. Let us have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds, over the earth, and every creeping thing that's on the earth. And God created man. In his image, in God's image, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. Amen. And then, and God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish, over the birds, of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to every creeping thing on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So that's kind of the, the passage that people will use several times. You hear God saying they have dominion. They can have, um, uh, uh, they are to subdue the earth. They are to use it for their benefit is yeah, like kind of the way people read it. There's like this power that this innate power that because we're created in God's image and God is this powerful individual that we somehow have the right to subdue. So that argument isn't without warrant. Um, the word dominion, we if we take an actual look at it, and I did, I'll I'll show you some of what I what I found. Um, the word to have dominion. It's throughout the Old Testament and throughout the secular Hebrew world. So that word is used quite often. Um, and every single time it's used within Scripture and every single time that that word is used outside of Scripture, it always has carried a negative connotation. Um, for the majority of the Old Testament, the word is used when one group rules over another group. Um, and you will read this word often referring to war when one army rules over another. Um, you'll see it used in the the relationship between a slave and the master. The master has dominion over the slave. Um, and it's always used within that negative con um, connotation. So it's not without warrant to say if humanity has dominion over the earth, they are allowed to use it just like a master uses their slave, just like a another nation would conquer another nation there that like that, that connotation is carried within that word. Yeah. So what does that look like though? Because we know as, as, as Jesus followers, he does not, he's not this individual who comes to subdue. He doesn't come with the intent of, of conquering in the, in the, in the way that conquering is usually thought of like this Jesus character comes in a very peaceful and pacifistic like manner and how does that how does that tie into this idea of okay this god gives individuals like us he gives people he gives humans this power over creation when this god comes down as a man that that guy then doesn't exactly he doesn't do dominion in the way that humans think dominion ought to be done and he doesn't ha use he doesn't wield power in the way that power humans think power ought to be wielded and that's actually kind of the root of the whole thing is that we jump into, you know, I think that happens in verse 27. Um, they have dominion. They have rulership. They have, um, uh, uh, they get to control what happens. And people read that verse, but they don't read it within the full context. And like if you look at verse 26, the verse I read beforehand, it says, God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he says, let them have dominion over the fish over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So you have to read the dominion aspect in the same light that you would view God. If humans are created in the image of God, then the dominion we have over the earth has to be read through the same lens that we would say God has dominion over humankind. Hmm. So to help illustrate that a little bit, um, we should also keep into context is the book of Genesis is written years after creation has taken place. I mean, it could yeah. have been a million of years. We, we don't know how long it's been. All we know is somebody recorded it way down the line um, post-creation, correct? 
Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like Adam penned the book of Genesis. Uh, I mean, I guess he did live a really long time, so maybe he could have lived through Abraham's time, but he would have had to hop on the uh, hop on the ark there with some of the giraffes, and they wouldn't have. They would. He had been pretty sneaky about it. <laughs> yeah, so it's most likely that cr- this creation story um, takes place long before it's ever written down. So you have to understand that the author of Genesis is implying some things that they may not have known, correct? So if it, let's just say, you know, Christian tradition says it's Moses. I'm not convinced it is, but let's say it is. Let's say it's Moses. Moses pens it. Moses is going to read this story because it's probably, you know, given to him since, you know, I, I don't know when, you know, orally. So he's heard the story his whole life. And he's going to write down what he's heard throughout history. So it's always going to carry um, influence from his sphere of influence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's, you know, a very famous um, author. Um, His name is Greinfeld Zobel. He wrote for the Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. He says in volume 13... Is he really uh, that famous? I've never heard of this guy. Nick, you you just don't spend time in lexicons like I do, my friend. That's, that's the problem. He says, humans were created in the image of God. Thus, their dominion and rule must be so in a godly manner. He says, specifically, it follows necessary that human dominion is a power bestowed by God and must serve to maintain God's order. Human rule must have positive consequences for those that are ruled. Hmm. End quote. Wow. Yeah, and God like kind of designs this earth with the intention of goodness, right? Like at the end of every day, at the end of every little creation segment, he's like, this was good, this was good, and this is good, and this is good, and this is good. And it's like, he's just, this, this is kind of the, the standard of this new planet. It's good. And I like what our, what our good friend Lindsay Hafner said on, on the, the Young Project blog, this most recent the Young Project blog post. And she says, from these first few details in the account, I think we can glean one thing, talking about the creation account. God designed this planet with the standard of good. And today, good is one of the more underwhelming adjectives the Genesis author could have used. Surely there's a Hebrew translation for the word dazzling or extraordinary, right? But good is the word the author includes. And I'm sure there are historical and linguistic reasons to explain this dictation, but I have my own propositions. Because she says this, God means, or excuse me, good means a few things that are strikingly meaningful in this context. First, good can mean having the qualities required for a particular role. Therefore, the text argues that God made the earth to be good, to fulfill a role for what the grand finale of, of the art project, a.k.a. the six-day wonder humans. And while it is tempting to employ the noted utility of the earth as evidence for the, the God made this earth for man argument, essentially advocating for an indifference towards sustainable living because humans are superior in nature, I would propose something else. I don't believe that God's gifts humans with anything excuse me, I don't believe that God gifts humans with anything, food, nature, language, time, the tabernacle, etc., and would wish for us to use them carelessly. The people of God have always been held to an extremely high standard for responsible living. Stewardship is highly advocated perpetually in both testaments of the Bible. Wow, that's beautiful. And and I think that actually follows suit with the way other people um, should read the word subdue. Um, so we talked about having dominion. We talked about um, subduing, and subduing actually also means to bring into bondage. And that word is used repeatedly both in the Hebrew Scriptures and also um, within secular, um, also within secular um, Hebrew writings. It also that words to subdue is often used to describe um, a sexual assault between two people. Wow. And yeah, um, but Wagner writes it. The word should be read as it supports, as you were saying, the utopian um, anthropological maxim that every human individual is a ruler of the world. And it should be read, this is my words now, it should be read without the idea of assault, but more of ownership over the earth. Yeah, Lindsay goes on in her blog post and she says, thus for a Christian, like God commands the first people of earth literally to serve their environment. She's talking about Genesis 2.15 where it is to dress Eden and keep it. That's where God says that to Adam and commands him to dress Eden and keep it. So like the Christian, like this environmental stewardship, it's like 
it's not this taboo topic. This was a mandate from the very beginning. Even our first, our first requirement uh, as being part of the human race. Mm. Wow, that is a really beautiful quote from Lindsay Hafner. So we can read that where, Nick? Oh, you can read that at theyoungproj.org. Uh, scroll down a little bit and click read blog posts. You can read, read lots of her stuff there. Seamless plugin for our website, theyoungproject.org. Where you can also find videos by our friend Peter Flores uh, on YouTube. Or you can just YouTube it, search it on the YouTube bar. Peter actually lives in Maine, which, if anyone knows, is about 80% forest. And only 20% of it is used for people to live in. So it's actually filled with wonder and beauty of the earth. Yep, and the tallest thing in Maine is like maybe 4,000 feet high, so, you know. That's true. If you want to see a big high mountain, you can come to Washington, actually where I live, right next to the mountain. So wherever you go, we're here. What mountain is that, Tommy? Mount Rainier, that is. Oh, wow. Have you climbed that? I drove as far as people can drive up. Proud of you. So So that's that's like... It wasn't just me. There were several people in it, so save the earth. Wow. Really happy for you. It's pretty up there. <laughs> so, Nick and I gave kind of understanding is that you can't read revelation only without understanding the genesis ideal and when we look back in genesis we see that god created the world for wonder for beauty for creativity and that each one of us are co-creators with god in that beautiful picture and to read revelation um, as this unchangeable act would be to discredit god's original intent and there's so much more to this conversation and we'd love to continue to dialogue with other people so if you think that you have more insight, either to argue with what we're saying or to propose new ideas or to agree, we'd love for you to reach out. You can talk to us on Twitter, Instagram, heck, even go to our website and leave a comment. Either way, we'd love to connect with you to hear your ideas. Up next, we have Act 3 conversation with stephanie smith who lives in the heart of seattle she's taking practical steps right here and now to help better our world This is the second project Stephanie and I have collaborated on before. Back in February of this year, we were both featured in a short documentary created by my friend Joel Wagness. It's entitled The Voices We Don't Have. Stephanie and I met on Western Ave in downtown Seattle a few weeks ago. For those that don't know the area, it's right near Pike Place. Stephanie has lived in several different parts of the U.S., including Louisiana. How long were you in Louisiana for? Like three years, literally. Um, I don't remember it. Like the only memory I have is me holding this toad after church. <laughs> that is probably the most Louisiana <laughs> thing I've ever heard. No, yeah, and I was holding it, and my mom was just like, "Stop! You're gonna get warts." And, and then, that's my that's only it. memory. Yep, yep. <laughs> and then now, where do you live? From there. Stephanie told me how she lived in Texas and Southern California, where she attended college for a little while. Eventually, she found herself at Walla Walla University, and that's where I first met her. And now, she lives in the heart of Seattle, and she proudly calls herself part of the community. Like many young adults today, Stephanie has become aware of the growing concern for environmental It has become a concern. I think since being in college... I've been, like, made aware of just a lot of things, like the state of the world and, like, politics and inequality and all of these things. 
And, you know, when you hear about those things, it's hard to not do anything about it. It's hard to not care about it. Um, from so there, Stephanie and I talked a little bit more, um, but eventually our tea came, so we decided to move to yeah, a quieter room where because, we like, could finish college, our conversation like, for like, a little bit. In, because there's always clubs, there's always this, there's always that, there's always a small group of people talking about something that's going on. Okay, is there anything you want me to restart since like now it's obviously like our environment? No, I think it'll be a cool transition. Okay. Of, we had to move because sound. Yeah. I'll just throw that in there. Okay. Um, so we were talking about when I learned, because it was something that I knew about, but it wasn't necessarily a prime concern just because it's like, Yes, you want to conserve, you want to do this, you want to do that. Your parents are always just like, turn off the lights and... Right. Like, yeah, yeah. And help out where you can. Yeah, but it didn't really become something alarming until recently. Recently? How recent? See, for Stephanie, as well as many of us, a lot of this didn't become pertinent or worth discussing until we hit college. So for her, a lot of this wasn't discussed about until the past year or so and she started to tell me how she found a lot of this through twitter facebook instagram and she started reading posts and seeing the science come out in many of the different social outlets about how the world is possibly coming to an end within our lifetime and how that demanded action forgot it was just some like random like hot take and they were like oh well we only have until the end of 2020 something and that's when everything is going to become irreversible and i was like what i had no idea it was that bad because uh, how do i say it? it's like very apparent with the weather cycle um, i did a little bit of looking and stephanie isn't wrong she's quoting from an abc article that came out saying that within the 2020s, if measures are not taken, we will find ourselves beyond the ability to help save our planet and curve climate change. Stephanie and I continued to chat for a while. She told me more about the articles that she had read and videos that she's seen. But then... Then she led me into a more vulnerable place with the topic. She started to describe how she thinks people are feeling and what kind of emotions are attached to this conversation. Yeah, it's something just very jarring and it's something that I didn't know or really want to have to deal with. Yeah. And so it's something that I feel like if you are aware of, you're either super angry or super upset or super in denial, you know? Mm. Because you're angry because you don't have a future, I guess, and you feel robbed and you feel all this way. Robbed. Yeah, like that's something, all of those three things that I just talked about are some things that I definitely had to work with when I kind of settle in with the fact like okay like this is happening like this climate change is not just like a oh lol global warming damn i have to put on a jacket now it's like no this isn't a joke anymore um i was really angry for a while because i was just because i was in my last year of college and i was learning all these things i'm just like well why am i doing this why am i going to class and like why am i studying for a degree that i'm probably never going to use i thought i had to come to terms with I mean, maybe this is just me being very dramatic, but this anxiety that, like, so many things are being taken from me because of the carelessness and greed and laziness of generations before. Mm -hmm. And even that is difficult to unpack because while the people as a whole, we do have very, like, wasteful practices I mean it's also big business it's the big not even the rich like the literal money hoarders that keep everything in play the way that it is you know mm. so that was the anger part and then just being upset is just 
I don't understand how you can't be upset because this is the only place we have. This is the only option I feel that makes sense is to try to fix. There's no planet B. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's talking about terraforming Mars and I'm just like, we're all here already, but it's only because it's easier because we wouldn't have to deal with the consequences of having to change literally everything about the infrastructure, about our consumption, about our wealth distribution, about everything. Because it's like the climate change, like it's not just like an ecological problem, it's a class problem, it's, a, it's just, it's a very multifaceted social problem. Right. And that's what makes it difficult. Because, so, oh, and that's the challenge with this topic. It's not just a war between the earth and people. There's so many layers in terms of class and race and education and wealth inequality that are all at play at the same time. And so Stephanie helps by showing us a little bit of what she's doing now to help curve her impact on the environment. Work aside, um, I mentioned earlier that I was just like, yeah, I was getting to, know the, getting to know the area because I try to walk as much as I can. And yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful city. It's a beautiful time of year. And those are all just like pluses, you know? Like I have a car, but one, it's broken. And two, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's not broken, but. Um, it needs work? It needs work. It's drivable, but. <laughs> I don't want to drive it, you know, because it just makes sense to walk around. One, you're saving gas, which saves you money. Two, no traffic, so you're saving time. <laughs> it just, it's a plus, it all makes sense. I yeah. mean, it might be harder to get farther, but you know. You live in Seattle. Yeah, it's really, really good public transportation. But see, in that in and of itself, that's something that I'm lucky that I have access to and that I'm able to use mm -hmm. because there are areas that don't have good public transportation in <coughs> LA. And <laughs> <laughs> or really anywhere out of a big city. Yeah. Or At least in the US. Some people find it hard to get to the stop. Some people, it doesn't work for them because... Yeah, it's right. just, it is like... Let's say you have a kid and they go to school in Kirkland, but you live in Ballard, so... And you work in Ballard, so that would be kind of hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, let me just keep things short. I still have my sick brain. Um, <laughs> I try to use public transportation. Uh, I try to eat at home where possible. I try to minimize when I order out. And I've done pretty good with that. I believe, but when I do order takeout, I only order from places that I know that have biodegradable. carbon waste uh, that it goes into like raising livestock for food wow. so so being vegetarian also helps yes being vegetarian also helps I'm trying to be vegan it's really really hard because love you love cheese or because <laughs> of convenience well both Maybe it's, it's because I'm not as intentional with my cooking as I should be, but sometimes it's just easy to, like, get, like, the fat and protein you need from, like, egg or cheese. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, that is easier. Than it's easier, but I, I know that I can, if I work a little bit harder, I can go without it, so. So that's a goal is to be vegan. Yes, yes. And that's for the sake at of least in the uh, Yes, at least in the context of buying eggs and buying. Gotcha. Because they're retiring with people and that. Or like buying like vegan bread. That's hard and that doesn't 
vegan bread? Yeah, because you need the eggs and the milk and right. the, yeah, okay. like pastries gotcha. and like any type of baked thing. You know, it's noodles. Noodles are flour and egg. Yeah, so. Oh, really? Yeah. See, there's a lot of hidden stuff. <laughs> I don't like this anymore. <laughs> Like, props to any vegan out there. I made fun of you for a long time, but you were all right. (laughs) (laughs) So you also thrift to help the environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's something that I try really hard to do because the fashion industry also creates a lot of waste, whether it's in, like, packaging or water or like harmful chemical byproducts. It's also just, in some ways it's, how do I put it? It's also just, um, it helps reduce the demand. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think I read somewhere that Forever 21 is going bankrupt now. Yeah, they are. Yeah, and that was like, when I think of fast fashion, that's what I think of is Forever 21, you know? Cheap they clothes. Cheap clothes, bad quality clothes. Bad quality. So, so bad. Like, you wash it once and you're like, <laughs> well, I need a new t-shirt now. Exactly, but that is the type of, like, spending culture that we have. That's the type of consumption culture that we have. Just like, oh, I'll get another one. And yeah, I mean, I've done that. I say I need a fast. Oh, yeah. I need a black t-shirt. And so. Yeah, yeah, for sure. H&M and I buy four of them. So with that, if you, it's, you can thrift, um, you can use thrifting apps if you really want to get that online fix. I used to use thrifting apps. I'm trying to make the switch to just go and thrift IRL so that I can cut down on the shipping. Wow. Um, Because if I order it online, then airfare and then. Exactly. Yeah. Packaging and then. See, there's just, like, levels to so many of these things, and that's why I feel bad when I see people... And Stephanie's right. This whole thing is so multi-layered and so complicated that there are so many things that factor at once. So some people are criticized heavily because they might drive a truck, but not realizing that they are trying to help with the environment by not eating meat. And others recycle faithfully every single day, but they have a big yard, so they're criticized because they cut their grass twice a week. Essentially, almost everything we do today has an effect on the environment. And Stephanie wants people to know that if you're trying and being faithful with what you can, you're already making a world of difference. What your lifestyle is, and then just trying to go at least one level up to start. Because if you try to go too many levels, you try to do too much at one time, it's not going to be sustainable for you to maintain. And one, you're going to feel frustrated. Two, you're going to quit. Yeah. So. Because it, it, it's really hard. Because yeah, you can like always it. say, I can be better. Yeah, it's like any other behavior change. It's like starting a workout, it's like implementing a new habit. So, recap I stay vegetarian, goal is vegan, I thrift, I try to stay away from packaged stuff, but that's the hardest one that I deal with. But I think it's the one that I need to implement to make the most change at this point. So. Stephanie and I continued to dialogue, we got into the conversation of privilege and how privilege plays a role in environmental impact. She started to describe her privilege and how that plays a role. She said that she can afford to buy shampoo bars rather than bottled shampoo to avoid the plastic and the consumption that eventually produces waste. However, there are those who can't afford that. And there are those who can't afford to be vegan because vegan food takes time and effort and money to make. And some people just can't avoid doing the processed packaged foods. And then we got onto the conversation of corporations. And as we were talking, she helped me realize that those who can make the most change and have the greatest impact, that is corporations, 
and businesses are actually those who are least affected. And because they're least affected, they do the least amount of change. Part of it is money. Mm. Money. Yeah. People who have spent their entire lives amassing these fortunes and just living like that. Because in order to become that wealthy, you have to take advantage of something. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, it's not only that. Like, this isn't just, like, wealth that they've acquired in, like, a couple years of working at a high-paying job. Like, this is generations and generations, you know? It's, like, the same, like, 15 families owning, like, 90% <laughs> of, everything. of everything. Right. And that compound interest formula. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, the compound interest formula. Side note, I don't actually know anything about the compound interest formula. You found ways that you can help. Yeah. And you think they make a difference? Do I think it makes a difference? Yeah. At the very, very, like, selfish level, it at least alleviates my cognitive dissonance. You You can say at least I helped. Yeah, at least I tried. At least I didn't just look the other way. I mean, sometimes I do. Like, if I, I bought espresso the other day and I d- forgot my Keith cup and I was just like, damn. I'm gonna have to use this. <laughs> but you recycled it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. But. but. And maybe, just maybe, that's the key to this whole thing. Trying to do the most good with what you have and where you are. Exactly. Because maybe people will see or people will hear. You don't know how much people are watching your actions and like watching what you do or like why you do it, you know? Yeah. So I mean, can just try. Isn't that the best we can do? Is within our sphere of influence? We want to thank you for joining us on the Young Project Podcast, hosted by Nick Root and myself. We want you to know that you can follow us on our website, theyoungproject.org, or you can follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, heck, even Twitter. And if you're in any of our five locations, we'd love for you to reach out to us and meet us. And in the words of Charmaine Tan, that's it.